Welcome to the Sensitive Shift Podcast, where your hosts, Agat and Anna, were highly sensitive people and we were once highly sensitive children. Today, we're talking about sensitivity and childhood and sharing some stories and experiences about growing up as an HSP ourselves. Agathe, how are you feeling about revisiting our childhood? Mm. <laughs> A great question. Um, you know, I feel some excitement, some nerves because it's it's a it's a big topic. There's there's so much there for revisiting many years of our, our lives in just a few minutes. <laughs> So obviously it won't, it won't feel super complete, but I'm, I'm just, I'm excited to dive in. And in the spirit of revisiting childhood, you know, yesterday I was at the grocery store, grocery store. <laughs> I was in the cereal alley and I was like, I really want some Fruit Loops. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I never got to eat those as a child. So why not? And I just got myself some Fruit Loops because I needed to take care of my inner child yesterday. So um, that's how I'm doing today. It's like a wonderful way to think about how we we carry our inner child. Like we still have very childlike aspects of us throughout mm -hmm. our lives. And we tend to associate sort of childhood with like fun and play mm. and enjoyment. And so we're going to talk about a little bit about that <laughs> um all the challenge too <laughs> exactly a bit of both a bit of both um feeling like you some mixed emotions excitement a little nervous it's personal it's vulnerable mm -hmm. but we're being brave today we are <laughs> and we'll move with care and compassion as we go if you are joining us today You've probably listened to our first episode, but, you know, we don't want to assume. So if you're new here, welcome. You should check out our first episode. It was great. We loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and in our last episode, we did introduce ourselves. We talked about our, our why for the podcast, and we presented the trait of high sensitivity, which is also known as sensory processing sensitivity. And we'll just do a little recap of some of the main characteristics of high sensitivity so that you can feel up to speed in this conversation. So high sensitivity has a handy acronym, which is DOES, D-O-E-S, to help us remember um, some of these characteristics. So D, to describe a greater greater depth of processing information from the environment and deep reflection. O for overstimulation, the only negative aspect of the trait. E for emotional intensity and empathy for others. And S for sensing the subtleties of the environment or in the environment. Of course, we remember that the term HSP is not a diagnosis, but rather a personality trait like we talked about. And it involves responsiveness to both positive and negative stimuli equally. While most of the research and the topics that we'll be talking about this season will focus on adults, today is sort of a special episode where we will take time to explore how sensitivity shows up 
and children. Uh, we'll talk about our own experiences as highly sensitive children, a little bit about what we wish we would have known, how the adults around highly sensitive children can nurture this quality uh, in us. So we're going to start with, I'm going to say a little bit of a personal question for you, I guess. <laughs> And I hope you can tell us a little bit about what are some of your first memories of discovering your sensitivity as a child? What do you remember first? Hmm. I can tell you that I remember experiencing pain very intensely. I remember also being very aware and worried about how others felt because I thought everybody felt as intensely as I did and so I, I was always worried about somebody else feeling alone or rejected or sensitive to a comment um, that was being said like in, in class or in kindergarten even like I, I remember being very reactive to other people's feelings or worried about their feelings and I mean, we'll explore a bit this, uh, like why I felt so stressed, <laughs> but I remember feeling extremely stressed as a, I would say early teenage years, um, to the point of feeling sick, uh, for a very long period of time. Yeah. Those are some, some things. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like big emotions to carry as a child and that's reminding me of, of the skill of regulating of regulating over arousal of regulating stress and we were talking about this and you right. had some interesting theories around sort of stress regulation over arousal and attachment theory mm -hmm. tell us more about attachment theory what do we need to know about the link between attachment theory and highly sensitive children. Mm. That, yeah, that's very interesting. Speaking of sensitivity in children, even attachment theory, attachment theory could be an entire conversation in itself. And when we speak of sensitivity in children and the development and nurturing of this trait, attachment really comes up. What, what we can do is, is I can give you a brief background of the theory and speak to its link with highly sensitive individuals, especially children. And I think a, a few people might already be aware of what attachment theory, probably attachment styles, what they are, because it's become quite folklorized now in our everyday conversations. You might see a lot of that online and in People speak about it in a way to relate, like dating coach will talk about that. Let's maybe go back and rewind a little bit and talk about what attachment theory is. And it was first formulated by psychologist, he was also a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, John Bowlby. And there was also more research added, of course, from other developmental psychologists later. And it's a psychological, evolutionary and ethological theory that establishes the fact that children need to develop a relationship with a primary caregiver for their emotional and social development. So attachment is really first and foremost a 
an instinctual bond created out of necessity for safety and security and survival. It's different than love and affection, uh, which is maybe surprising, but uh, that relationship can also coexist with uh, the caregiver. Uh, having access to a secure figure is important in stressful situation to decrease fear in children and to learn how to respond to a threatening situation. That's a, a great background for, <laughs> for us. And since we know that every experience is different, what kind of considerations do you think we should keep in mind knowing that? Well, I think there could be many, but one to, to note now, which is to consider cross-cultural uh, differences. Our Western culture predominantly looked at child rearing and the function of attachment between a single primary caregiver, which was often the mother, and that in itself could be uh, studied and and looked at and discussed. Um, mm -hmm. So between that single primary caregiver and the child to seek to create a secure bond, but there's also been studies in other cultures, uh, namely collectivistic cultures, cultures where multi-generational families are responsible for child rearing, and other organizational structures, such as tribes, for example, that showed that the didactic model is not the only one that has the capacity to produce a secure attachment in children. And can you give us a reminder? We know there's secure attachment. You've just said that. Can you give us a reminder of the different types of attachment and how they're expressed in a child's behavior? Mm -hmm. Yep. There are three main patterns that are identified. And they are secure, like uh, you talked about. There's avoidant, there's anxious, and there's a fourth that's also been discussed. It's called disorganized or fearful avoidant attachment. A quick rundown <laughs> of each of these is that for someone or a child that has a secure attachment, it typically will present that the child will be able to explore freely when the caregiver is around, will display an emotional response of distress when the caregiver leaves, will interact with new people and objects, and will be expressing joy or happiness when the caregiver returns. And that attachment really represents a fair confidence from the child that the caregiver is sensitive and will respond to needs and communication. Mm -hmm. And avoidant attachment will, a child will typically ignore the caregiver and show little emotion, whether the caregiver leaves and returns. If it approaches the caregiver, it will do so in kind of an abortive fashion. Um, the child will not really explore much. It will lack emotional display as a mask for a distress. And their needs are infrequently met. And they learn that communication of their needs has no influence on the caregiver. Mm. An anxious attachment is will pre typically presents as a child will react very strongly, the, the distress will be very strong to the caregiver's departure and be ambivalent about their return. Um, and that's often due to an, an unpredictable response to their needs being met. The child will typically explore little and be wary of strangers, even in the caregiver's presence.
And already that's, you know, having me think about behaviors of highly sensitive children. I'm wondering if you could speak to how attachment theories and these attachment styles, how that interacts with the development of highly sensitive children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're circling back to, to, to stress that we were mm-hmm. touching on. But the research really goes back to infancy and the development of the nervous uh, system of highly sensitive children. So when we're speaking of sensitivity, we're really talking from the point of view of behavioral activation system in a child that's a few months old. So that's how early the development um, starts. We're talking about the pause and check system that we briefly talked about already in um, in the first episode. And that pause and check system starts appearing around six months old as a first level of assessment of situation. And that's where the attunement with the caregiver and the attachment becomes relevant. Because an infant and child will be willing to explore and overcome fears by trusting that others around are around to help and by imitating others safely. There's a regulation of the over-arousal when something new becomes too much, then they can come back and they can feel confident that the caregiver will be able to help them regulate um, that stressful situation. What the quality of attachment does is that it will teach the highly sensitive child how to regulate the over-arousal. And over-arousal releases cortisol, which is the stress hormone. And the research shows that there are short-term effects and potential long-term effects of recurrent over-arousal, which can make us more excitable and more sensitive. But the research really shows that or really thought that the whole point of the pause and check system might be to protect one from the effects of long-term arousal. So a secure attachment showed that while the highly sensitive child might still experience a novel experience as stressful from an arousal perspective in the short term, they didn't display long-term cortisol level effects compared to highly sensitive children with insecure attachment. So a highly sensitive child who grows up with a secure attachment, has learned to trust their bodies and regulate their nervous system and really think something like, my sensitivity is not an enemy. It's special. It needs tending. It needs special care. Whereas in the case of an insecure attachment, due to a multitude of factors, uh, the messages learned about sensitivity and our bodies can be very different and frustrating. It's fascinating, really. And... It has me thinking about just how kind of protective that would be for a highly sensitive child whose nervous system is already taking in so much of the environment that it sounds like to have this secure attachment in this case would just be so beneficial and so protective. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to maybe want to share a little bit more about how high sensitivity does show up differently in children than it does in adults. And there is this wonderful book by uh, Dr. Aaron talking about specifically highly sensitive children. 
just like there's a questionnaire for adults to determine if they are highly sensitive, there's also a questionnaire to determine whether children are highly sensitive. And the, the corresponding questionnaire that's used to help identify highly sensitive children presents sort of like clusters of behaviors and patterns that can be observed by adults. Something to know is that the different aspects of the trait that we talked about before, so that wonderful acronym, the depth of processing, being easily overstimulated, emotionally reactive, or aware of subtle stimuli are pre present in children just like they are in adults. The difference mainly uh, is seen in sort of these outward observable behaviors. And I'll tell you what that looks like with concrete examples. So if we're thinking about depth of processing in adults, this might show up as, for example, the tendency to reflect deeply, to be deeply moved by art and music. Whereas for a child that might look different. It might look like asking a lot of questions and being quite curious about the world. It might be using big words for their age after hearing the word only once or twice, all of which when sort of clustered together demonstrate this greater processing, this tendency to pause, to check, to reflect about the world before acting. Mm -hmm. In a similar way, if we think about overstimulation, if we think about adults, we might describe this in statements like, I feel overwhelmed, or we might relate to the sentence, I prioritize arranging my life to avoid upsetting or overwhelming situations. We schedule ourselves in such a way to kind of remain calm and regulated. Whereas when it comes to children, the examples start to sound a little bit more like it's hard to get them to go to sleep after a long day. They complain about seams in their socks or scratchy clothing. <laughs> in a similar way, emotional reactivity and empathy in adults might sound like the statement, other people's moods affect me. While in children, this might look like crying easily, or it might be the child noticing the distress of others and being distressed by the distress of others. Mm. And particularly, there's some examples in the book that I related to. It was like they were describing me. Mm. And this was around sort of the treatment of animals. There might also be really deeply uh, saddened to hear that sort of the polar bears are drowning because of global warming at the age where we're, we're taught about global warming. And it's not just with interviews that this has been studied. It's sort of interviewing parents. There's also a lot of brain imaging studies that find that highly sensitive um, adults, just like children, their brains will light up differently when perceiving particularly emotional stimuli. I like how you've been able to um, associate some of these main characteristics of a highly sensitive person, how it may present in a child, because we all know that we we can't expect a child to be able to express what they're going through at the same the same way that an adult might be able to. One of the things that you were talking about, like uh, complaining about seams in socks and scratchy clothing, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, that's 
that that was something for me as well and and obviously the emotional reactivity was a big uh, a big way it, it expressed itself um in me and and i think it it really brings up that that question that i'm i'm wondering how your sensitivity was understood handled and nurtured by adults around you as you were growing up Mm, that's a wonderful question. And looking back, I can self-identify with a lot of the descriptions of how highly sensitive children will feel or behave. And I, I'm going to say no for a fact that my parents didn't know about the concept of highly sensitive people <laughs> or children. So they were going with intuition and I think that overall, my experience was a positive one, even if, you know, it isn't possible to be understood 100%, right? But I, I feel like there were a lot of parts of me and parts of my sensitivity that were celebrated, that were seen, um, and that were appreciated. I think particularly uh, the idea of empathy was noticed mm -hmm. uh, and and I received I think positive reinforcement for for that. One of my father's favorite mm -hmm. stories about me as a child, one that I heard so many times because he's told me the story and he's told other people the story, is a time when I was I want to say very little, um, old enough to speak, but <laughs> not you know much more than that. And it was a time when I was receiving an allowance of, I think it was 25 cents at the time. So that goes to show wow. you sort of how long, how long ago and how little I was. It was a symbolic allowance. We oh. would get a coin on Fridays. And we happened to be in a pastry shop and it was sort of like midweek. It wasn't the end of the week. It wasn't time to receive allowance yet. But we were at a pastry shop, a bakery, and there was a little kind of box that you could put coins into. I remember just kind of like pulling at my dad's sleeve and just being like, daddy, daddy, like, please, can I have my allowance now? And he was kind of like, I don't know why, but okay, like, I guess. <laughs> and so he gave me a little quarter and without hesitating, I went and I put it in this little box. I don't know if they still have that now, but they used to have little boxes at the cash where you could put mm. spare change for, you know, this one was a starving child in Africa where you could kind of see their bones. And mm. um, I don't remember the story living it. I remember the story <laughs> being told to me, but my dad really was struck by how I just really wanted to to give away. Like I didn't need this money. I was surrounded by pastry and food, but I could see that there was someone else that needed help mm. and I wanted to help that person. And this is one example, but I think there's many stories where it was kind of seen that I had empathy and I wanted to give and I wanted to help. And that was always nurtured. Mm. Yeah. That's a lovely story. Thank you. I also like that Friday was payday, and it's still payday. <laughs> still is. We still love Fridays. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. 
And what about you, I guess? How was your sensitivity nurture handled by adults around you? Uh, you know, that's um it's a complex question. I uh well, I, I think I first wanna say that this episode is by no means a criticism to our parents or our families. We're just talking about our experiences as people who have been in our own bodies and minds and hearts and and can speak to that today with 25 years of, um, what's the word in English? Of, uh, recul? <laughs> Let's say that in English. Hindsight. Hindsight, there you go. I, I can tell you that my emotional reactivity, which is a major part of how my sensitivity was expressed, um, was not always understood. I think it, it was confusing to others. It, it was all often the part that made people maybe uncomfortable. I think it, it came across as we, we want to help you regulate how much you feel or how much you express how much you feel uh, because that was concerning to people. But I will say that in my family, creativity was very much nurtured and encouraged, which is one major aspect of sensitivity as a, a child and as an adult growing up. So I really appreciated that my parents allowed me to try every single sport and musical instrument and any endeavor that I had was allowed and explored and encouraged and, and valued. And mm -hmm. my art was displayed in, in the... <laughs> in the kitchen and, and in the living room and it, that that was lovely um i will say at school is where i got a lot of the negative messaging around sensitivity i was bullied a lot in school at different ages and i really believe that it was the emotional reactivity that was one of the reasons why i seemed like an ideal target i was quiet but reacted strongly whenever something bad would happen and I was often told by the adults if I did bring it up at all to the adults and that I shouldn't be so sensitive and that my sensitivity and my reactivity was what was attracting the bullying or what made it so significant why why people were bullying me so much or were so mean to me was because I was reacting to it so mm. I think for a long time the message I got was that my sensitivity was not only a weakness but it was going to be the cause of my own demise that's the way that I had framed it for a very long time yeah Hmm. I'm so sorry to hear that it almost sounds like it was dismissed at times when you really would have needed an adult to come in and mm -hmm. and validate and see you. I think yeah. there's multiple things that are very important in this conversation is that children children's issues are as important as adult issues 
and this entire podcast is really about talking about nuance, right? And talking about the different possibilities and, and how it felt like to be in our experience. And we, like we said in the first episode, there are so many different experiences. And, you know, as we're transitioning from our childhood to our adulthood, and some of that work is work that we've had to do ourselves and that we continue to do. And I'm rethinking about my Fruit Loop comment at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> and I'm wondering, Anna, if you can take a couple minutes to just explain to us the concept of reparenting ourselves which I think is also something that's become a bit more popular in, in today's culture, but let's go through it a little bit more and explain to people what they can, what they, what they could do to be the parent that they need as an adult for their sensitive selves. Yeah, of course. And I'm going to speak from sort of my experience and my understanding, which is that our childhood sort of informs the way that we navigate the world today and um, the voices that we heard and the parenting that we had informs our inner voice that we have now. And sometimes there's a way to have some of this be reframed in adulthood to be just a little bit more helpful. I'm going to pull, actually, this is directly from the book, so it's not my words, Mm -hmm. I want to be crediting that where credit is due. Uh, it comes from the highly sensitive uh, person, the, the book by Dr. Elaine Aaron. And she talks about these five tips on how to be a kind parent to yourself, especially as an HSP, and especially when we're feeling overstimulated or overwhelmed, over aroused when we are afraid of new situations or things are feeling uncertain we can remind ourselves the following things the first one is just as a parent would not send their toddler into a new situation all alone we don't have to do that to ourselves you can take someone with you if you're afraid of trying something new Secondly, just as a parent begins by talking about a situation with a child, talk to the fearful part of yourself and focus on what is familiar and safe when trying new things. Third, just as a parent keeps the promise that the child can leave if he or she becomes too upset, allow yourself to go home if you need to, to leave the situation if you need to. Just as a parent is confident that the child will be okay after a while, expect the part of yourself that is afraid to also be okay after some time to adjust to the unfamiliar situation. And lastly, just as a, a parent is careful not to respond to a child's fear with more concern than is justified by the situation, <laughs> If the part of you that is fearful needs help, respond with no more anxiety than the braver part of you thinks is justified. And you can't see this, but I have like my hand on you my know, heart. I was <laughs> As just I'm reading that. I was just about to say that, Anna, and I was just taking a deep breath 
with you as you were reading this and I was observing you and as a embodied therapist <laughs> I was gonna comment on that hand on your chair <laughs> and uh, and ask you if there's any feelings that are coming up for you any feelings that you have about you know looking back at that sensitive child self of yours mm. Yeah, I, uh, of course, I feel this and I feel the strength of the kind of the compassionate adult caring voice that mm -hmm. comes across. And I just love this idea that it can come from outside and it often does. And it can also come from inside mm -hmm. that comfort and that care And that trust, that last one, right? The trust that we will be okay and we can do hard things. Mm. We can do scary things. We can do new things. And they may sometimes be more scary. And it doesn't need to be something limiting. It can be something that we care for and we work with. Yeah. Well, we, we have to, right? we're not gonna stop mm. being sensitive yeah it's lovely thank you yeah. now to you how do you feel looking back at your sensitive child self anything you would tell her um any things i would tell her looking back i feel so much compassion for this child who desperately wanted to be seen I'm sad for what she went through and like I, I was explaining, I, she really believed that um, it was because she was so sensitive that some of these things that happened, happened. And um, I'm thankful that she stuck it out and that uh, now we can take care of her and value her for the richness that she brings in in our lives and i i have had to do a lot of work to feel some of these terms that i'm bringing up compassion thankfulness um care richness i two years ago i would have been like take it away from me i just i don't want any of it so you know it's 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 a journey And I, I appreciate what you said on we can do the same things. We can do hard things. We can do complex things, beautiful things. It's not easy, but we do them in a special way as well. And I, I actually really appreciate that now. I really do. And with that being said let's uh debunk some myths and you can play with us that's the whole point by uh joining us on our instagram and playing with us in stories anna are you ready i'm ready all righty what is it is it a myth or is it the truth that highly sensitive children are particularly fussy ah it's tempting to want to think it's a truth but It's a myth. While 
It is true that highly sensitive children can be bothered by uncomfortable stimuli. Of course, that's the only negative part of the trait. Um, their reaction is very real. Their feeling is very real. I also want to say that sensitivity is not mainly about being distressed, overwhelmed by mm -hmm. loud noises, cluttered rooms, changes, sensory stimuli, smells, fabrics, all that stuff. That's not the essence of sensitivity <laughs> at all. We're going to get a bad rep. Yes. So uh, many, uh, many people can feel sensory overload. But what really stands out about sensitivity is this elaborate and deep sensory processing. So it would be incorrect to mislabel highly sensitive children as fussy or to use fussy and sensitive interchangeably. Mm. Yeah, it just reminds me of how language is important, right? That's interesting. Thank yeah, you, Anna. Absolutely. And now your turn mm -hmm. for the second myth or truth. We have the statement, highly sensitive children are introverted. Well, I'm giving you a second in case you're playing with us and you're wondering, but it is actually both a myth and a truth because... It's true that introversion is often confused with high sensitivity, but let's say that one does not exclude the other. So you may have a highly sensitive child that might, might both be sensitive and introverted or simply one or the other. So the way that we're going to briefly uh, distinguish both of these traits because they are traits is that introversion is really about recharging by being on our own and the overstimulation comes from social stimuli whereas being highly sensitive isn't necessarily linked to how one recharges although it can but the difference is really on the overstimulation and as a highly sensitive person the overstimulation can come from all types of stimuli so social, emotional, and physical. That's that. Anna, tell us how did you in the past week, or if you want to speak in the future, how well you nurture your sensitivity this week for our HSP Ooh. Minute. I'm excited for this week, nurturing. I have, I'm counting, I think, five books Ooh. on my kitchen counter. Yes, I, I saw that the other day. You saw that. <laughs> I've just gone to the library and I am going to nurture my HSP with some reading on all kinds of different topics. There's a autobiography. There's a topic on HSP and love. <laughs> There's some therapy related topics here. There's a story, a short story. So we're going to do some reflecting, some learning mm. this week with those books. And what about you? What are you going to do this week to nurture your sensitivity? Well, apart from eating Fruit Loops, which I've brought up way too many <laughs> times in this podcast. We're going to need a, an Insta story of the Fruit Loops. No one's going to understand this. <laughs> um, It'll also, be a poll. Do you get where this is coming from? <laughs> if you don't know what Fruit Loops are. 
listen to episode two. Yes. And they're cereals that are very colorful and they're very lovely. Great description. So apart from eating Fruit Loops, I'll go in the past. This past week was difficult. I had some difficult decisions to make in my personal life. And I really took my time to process how I felt. And with understanding the different parts of me that was that were in these decisions. So I really identified as like childhood self who like really wants to feel seen and loved and accepted and, and sees the good in everything. And then there's the grown up part of me that's like, okay, but you know, we've learned other things and the world does not always, always goes the way that we want it. And I really took my time to like honor these parts, including that child self, I should say. And I think the the other part was reassuring my sensitive self and my child self, just like in the reparenting portion that you were talking to us about, Anna, mm-hmm. um, reassuring my sensitive self that I was safe and that I was going to be okay. And mm-hmm. that work is just mind blowing to me that, you know, how far I've come and how much further I can go. So you know, although it was difficult decision week, I'm really ex- happy and excited of how I navigated it. So slow clap here, or no, not slow clap, but claps everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> and that's just laughing at me. <laughs> I don't know if our claps are going to be picked up by the mic, but we were clapping. We were clapping. Hmm. Wonderful. It's been so lovely to talk about this in the end. You know, we started a little nervous, a little excited, a little bit of mixed emotions. And we did it. We did a scary thing. We did. Here we are. (laughs) Yep. And so we're always going to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at the sensitive shift pod and to engage with us, to let us know your thoughts about this episode, all of our other episodes. We're very aware that, you know, we we didn't speak about everything that we could have spoken about, about this specific topic as well. So you can let us know what you would like to hear more of, and we'll take that into consideration as we continue building. And we look forward to seeing you in the next episode on sensitivity and gender, gender norms, and stereotypes. Yep. And before we go, just a short disclaimer that we are discussing contents related to personal wellness, but these do not constitute as advice. We acknowledge that each experience is different and that if you're looking for specific support, then you may consider one-on-one professional support individualized to you. Anna, thank you for being here, for doing this with me. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time.